We'll be in verses 1 through 7 today. And from those verses, I'll preach from the title, Renouncing Transactional Religion. What is your reaction when somebody does something uh, unexpectedly nice for you? What's your, what's your response when that happens? Maybe a friend buys you a really nice gift just because. Or a new acquaintance picks up the lunch tab even though what you ordered was definitely more expensive than their meal. If you're like many of us, those kinds of unexpected moments might elicit a feeling of indebtedness. Of course, you're thankful, but there is something else as well, a a sense of obligation to pay them back. To the gift-giving friend, you might blurt out, but I didn't get you anything. And to the generous Luntz companion, you promise, don't worry, I'll get you next time. There are plenty of reasons why it's hard for us to simply accept generosity. I think one of them has to do with our tendency to treat others transactionally. You give me this, and I'll give you that. You act this way, and I'll act that way. You say this, so I'll say that. This transactional tendency even gets applied to our relationship with God. As I mentioned, beginning today, we're going to spend four Sundays in Isaiah chapter 58. This chapter in the Old Testament book of Isaiah is serving as our church's biblical anchor for 2023. As we focus on praising God for his faithfulness to us over these 13 years and preparing for the good future God has for us. I trust that as we spend time with this chapter, it will become clear how these verses can evoke our praise while also calling us to prepare for the good work God has for us in the future. The prophet Isaiah was speaking to a people who had lived through generations of instability, confusion, and displacement. But the political calculus was starting to change, and the people felt a renewed hope that their exile might finally be ending, that they might finally be returning to the homeland of their ancestors. One commentator says that Isaiah addresses the crisis of religious faith in the aftermath of destruction. Can anybody relate? Part of the crisis of faith that God's people experienced had to do with the way they had treated God transactionally. Specifically, in this passage, they were upset because their fasting didn't make God do what they wanted God to do. And so through the prophet Isaiah, God told his people that their fasting was rebellious Because it served their own interest. Our tendency to treat others transactionally is so deeply ingrained that we often don't notice it until the transactions don't work the way we think they're supposed to work. 
That's what the Israelites were living through. Their exilic circumstances were forcing them to see how they'd accepted a way of engaging with God that had more in common with pagan idolatry than with worshiping the God of the universe. It's typically when God doesn't do what I think he's supposed to do that I realize I have succumbed to transactional religion. When God doesn't act how we want him to act, we have a choice. We can either get stuck in a place of exhaustion and bitterness, or we can confess. We can confess how we have reduced God to a bottled up genie and grow into a deeper faith. Moments of clarity about our transactional inclinations can open us up to the grace and gift of a relationship with a God who loves us not for what we have done, but just because he loves us. So here is my one big idea today. God leads us from transactional religion to transformational worship. Maybe we could say that God frees us from transactional religion for transformational worship. The people ask God in verse 3, why do we fast and you do not see? Why do we humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Now, the problem with their question is not that it's a question. The scriptures are full of people questioning God. Somebody say amen. That's a good thing for all of us, isn't it? The problem is not the question. The problem is the assumption behind the question. God, we fast. How come you aren't seeing? God, we've humbled ourselves. How come you are not noticing? It's transactional and we all do this. And before you say that you don't do this, let me ask you about your posture to your direct supervisor. Is there any way ever that you say something or do something with the hope that your supervisor is going to act in a certain kind of way? Is there any honest people here today? We all do this. We live in a transactional society. Literally, our society is built on the idea that if I can afford this, then I deserve this. If I can pay for this, then it doesn't really matter what the repercussions are because I paid for this, so I get to do this thing. There are some app trackers now that are keeping track of celebrities' private jets because we all know that one of the the, the greatest contributors to climate change is actually flying jets. And what these trackers have found is that there are certain celebrities, who I'm not going to name because I know some of you are close with some of these people, are getting into their private jets and flying 15 minutes just to avoid rush hour traffic by themselves in their jet for convenience. And then they'll probably go on to speak publicly on behalf of, you know, environmentalism and and whatnot. And we kind of look at that and shrug and we say, well, they got the money for it. They could afford that. So it's what are you going to do? 
This is the air that we breathe. In fact, I would say that our world is so transactional in nature that to, to make the point about how accustomed we are to transactional relationships is not all that helpful to pile up example upon example upon example because it's just, in, instead what's more helpful is to say, when was the last time you weren't in a transactional relationship? What did that feel like? I finally succumbed to COVID the first week of 2023. I've joined the club. Finally, you all let me in. I've been trying to get in. And it had been a while since I've been really, really sick. And so I kind of forgotten just how useless I am, especially when you're not allowed to leave your, your room for five days. And Maggie was so kind and the boys were so generous and some of our leaders uh, chipped in to, to you know, buy us food so that we didn't have to worry about food that week. And can I tell you, I felt that. Because I couldn't give anything back. There was no, I'm a, I'll get you later. Because frankly, I don't even remember who it was that you know, gave us a gift card. I had that COVID foggy brain thing going on. You notice when you're engaging in a relationship that's not transactional. It feels different. Being so formed in this transactional way of life impacts our relationship with God. So Israel says, look, we've been fasting, God, but you're not doing the things that we wanted you to do as a result of our fasting. So God says, well, well, let me tell you what's actually going on here. You fasted to serve your own interests. You continued to oppress your workers you continued to quarrel. You continued to fight. In other words, you kept your status quo exactly the same and you tried to add a little bit of God to it to justify your agendas, to justify your plans, to justify your decisions for your own life. And so God says, these people seek me and delight to know my ways. That all sounds pretty good. As if. They were a nation that practiced righteousness. In other words, God says, your fast is an act. It's a facade meant to elicit a response from God without actually living as the people of God. All of us, like I said, all of us are prone to this. Each of us is susceptible to appealing to shallow displays of religiosity to justify ourselves and to advance our own self-centered agendas. All of us, hear me. But on this Sunday, a mere handful of hours removed from yet another mass shooting, another expression of terror directed at this country's Asian American citizens, we ought to be honest. We ought to be specific about how so many of this nation's political leaders employ cheap God talk to disguise how they conspire with the wicked status quo. I promise you, I will bet all the money in my wallet. No, don't do that. It's only credit cards. I bet all the change in my change drawer that in the hours and the days to come, powerful people will invoke the bloodshed in Monterey Park using the language of Scripture. 
they will appeal to prayer and Christian goodwill. People who have been elected for the purpose of using the political process for the good of everybody they represent will tell us indignantly that these are not the moments to talk about politics. But I don't think we are fooled. And I know for a fact that God will not be mocked. The self-righteous and self-serving agendas of cowardly leaders are ultimately powerless acts of profane piety. I wonder, would God say anything differently to them as he did to those exiles claiming his name for their agenda? Announce to the people their rebellion. To the representatives of this so-called Christian nation, their sins. Day after day, they seek me and delight, delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and justice. You serve your own interests with your religious displays. Your apathy and fear continues to oppress the vulnerable. And your empty thoughts and pointless prayers cannot disguise your history of quarreling and fighting and striking with a wicked fist. And so to every elected official and civic leader who has abdicated their responsibility to protect our neighbors, I say, keep God's name out of your mouth today. To those who have used their platforms to fan flames of racial hatred, who've winked and shrugged at the increasing instances of anti-Asian hate, I say, limit your God talk today to prayers of repentance and remorse. Confess your blood-stained complicity before it is too late. I know some of you are like, oh. To the preachers and the pastors. Who have traded the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ to become spokespeople for violent and racist agendas cloaked in warped ideology and theology. I say, resign your positions and dedicate yourselves to quiet lives of repentance and repair. Confess, as did the Assyrians at Jonah's message. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger away so that we will not perish. The rotten fruit of transactional religion is all around us. New community, hear the word of God. Cutting through the lies today, lifting up the truth, allow the prophetic reality defining word of God to be your comfort and your compass today. 
allow the living, breathing, resurrected word of God, Jesus Christ, be your foundation and your oxygen today, your shield and your strong tower today, your deception, resisting and despair, defying hope today. Y'all can relax. That's as political as I'm going to get the rest of the morning. The problem with transactional religion, though, goes far beyond its shallow and hypocritical nature. Even more problematically is the way that transactional religion binds us and keeps us captive. We can never do enough. Because anything that's not going the way that we think it's supposed to go must be because we're not doing enough. I'm not sacrificing enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not reading the Bible enough. I'm not serving enough. I have too much sin, too much brokenness, too much history in my life. So I got to work harder. I got to do more. I got to be a better Christian. Transactional religion always leads to a captivity. And it expresses itself in at least two ways. The first is exhaustion. Because we keep trying. We keep trying to do more. Keep trying to do more to please God. Keep trying to do more religious stuff so that God would do the things we think God is supposed to do for us. Can I confess to you that churches generally like exhausted people? Oh, because we can get you to do some stuff. We can get you to serve more. We can get you to give more. We can get you to show up more because you're trying to get God to act in the way you think God's supposed to act. Churches are generally okay with some exhausted people. The other result is that it can lead to bitterness, though. Because you get to a point where you finally say, look, God, there's literally nothing else I can do. I've given you everything. Blood, sweat, tears, money, my relationships with my children. I've given it all to you and still I'm in this place. I'm done. Churches are not as happy with the bitter people. The exhausted people are okay. And so I want to suggest some brief questions for you this morning. Because we are all prone to this religion of transactions. So how do we escape? I think there's at least three relatively simple things we can remember. The first is to never waste a good crisis. When you and I find ourselves in a crisis, we find out what we really believe. Like when things are good, I, you can tell me you believe whatever, that's fine. But when the bottom falls out, then we all know. Never waste a good crisis. When, you're, when you find yourself in a crisis moment, reflect, is my response in this moment because I've been treating God transactionally? A second thing is to pay attention to what the, the Christian mystics call the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is a season of our discipleship when we can't feel God, when we can't see God, when we can't sense God. The mystics tell us that in the dark night of the soul, God is at work in such a deep place in our lives that our emotions and our senses cannot, cannot reach it, cannot touch it, cannot sense it. If you find yourself in the dark night, notice your posture. Are you able to trust 
that our gracious God is doing a new thing in you, despite the fact that you can't do anything about it? Or do you get kind of mad that you don't get to be a part of whatever God is doing in your life? The third thing is to notice your posture to the spiritual disciplines, to prayer, to fasting, to scripture reading, to seasons of celebration, to corporate corporate worship. Do you treat spiritual disciplines as a way to get God to do something or as a way to step into the streams of God's grace? Do you do the spiritual stuff in order to get God to do something or do you practice spiritual disciplines as a way of stepping into rivers of grace? opening up your eyes to the grace of God in your life. So in your bulletin on the back page under the notes section, I've given you those three questions. And maybe that's something you can take in your scripture reading and your, in your time of prayer this week. Honestly, consider your posture towards this transactional religion. Because God wants to free us, rescue us, save us from transactional religion and all its captivities to transformational worship. In fact, God wants this so much that the passage begins, God says to Isaiah, shout this out. He didn't say, you know, teach this in a sophisticated way. (laughs) Write a book about this. Shout it out, Isaiah. The, the literal language here is, use your throat, Isaiah. Like you were a, a ram's horn, Isaiah. Blast this message out. Warn the people that they have been captive to this transactional religion. God sees through the people's religious hypocrisy. He sees where it leads and he wants something better for his people. So what does God want for his people? Lives of Justice and compassion, according to this text. God says, I want you to lose the bounds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. This is comprehensive justice. This is justice on a large scale. This is justice without exceptions. This is just God's shalom breaking into everything and everybody and everywhere. As God intended from the beginning, as God created woman and man to participate in ushering God's shalom into the world, God says, that's what you're about. And also, and also, to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover them and to not hide yourself from your own kin. If the first one is just as large scale, the second movement is pretty specific. I call this compassion. Acts of compassion. And I know we're a, we're a church that cares about justice. And so we're like, you know, compassion, that's fine. But the real work is justice. And we've got to change the systems. Amen, amen, amen. And God says, but, but do you see people? Do you see flesh and blood around you? Are you responding to people's lived realities and experiences? That's compassion. My wife is my example of compassion. There's a, a, a guy in our neighborhood who, who sells the Streetwise magazine, and he's a double amputee. He sits in a wheelchair, super nice guy. And Maggie, I asked her permission, I asked her permission. So, so um, uh, Maggie, if she's within a block or two of this man, she's going to find him. She's going to check in with him. How you doing? They know each other well enough now. They know what's going on in each other's lives. Sometimes she'll buy a magazine. But, but Maggie sees this man. It's, it's her neighbor, and so she's going to engage with him as her neighbor, compassion, specific acts of love towards actual people in our lives. Now here we ought to be a little skeptical and say it sounds like we're actually just trading one form of transactional religion for another. 
We're, we're trading acts of religious piety for acts of justice and compassion. And how many of you know that we, we actually do that pretty well? <laughs> we're actually pretty good at trading one form of fundamentalism for another form of fundamentalism. There are a whole lot of people who talk about being woke and on the progressive side of things, and they're just as enslaved to a fundamentalist religion as they were when that thing was flipped the other direction. But that can't be what God is after here, given God's warning to his people. What God describes is a people who have encountered the living God in worship and who are being transformed by God to love what God loves to joining God in cultivating a just and righteous and compassionate world. That's the vision. It's not trading one form of transaction for another. It's being transformed by God to join God in loving the world. The posture of transactional religion is manipulative selfishness. Let me do what I think I need to do to get you to do what I want you to do. But the posture of transforming worship is open-hearted selflessness. It's very, very different. And this is why we can never return to the cross of Jesus Christ often enough. Despite our sinful tendency to reduce relationships to transactions, there has never been a transactional relationship which actually leads to freedom. Ever. If you treat your child transactionally, she will grow up with a diminished imagination of her own capacities. If you treat your friend transactionally, he will tiptoe around your triggers which jeopardize your acceptance. Treat your spouse transactionally, and they will slowly shrivel under your regime of limited love. Treat the God who created the universe transactionally. The God who breathed you into existence. The God whose plans for you are good and hopeful. The God who gives and gives and gives. Treat this God transactionally and you will find that you have ended up worshiping another God entirely. A lesser God. A vindictive God. A God who keeps and settles scores. A God who can never be pleased. A God who is insatiable and petty. A God who ensnares and entraps. A legalistic God who delights in the contractually binding and extrudable fine print of your life. This is why we can never return to the cross of Jesus Christ often Enough. Because if there was ever anybody who could manage transactional relationships, wouldn't it be God? If there were ever anyone who could justify imposing the obligations of transactions, wouldn't it be God? Oh, but scripture reveals God to be the very opposite of some transactional deity made in our image. This God took on our flesh, drew close to our brokenness, felt 
our exhaustion and bitterness in his body. This God knew what it's like to be reduced to a commodity and taken advantage of for somebody else's agenda. This God lived among people who suffered under the worst of transactional ideologies and theologies. Those who've been occupied and exploited by political power. Those who had been burdened and weighed down by manipulative religious power. This God, enfleshed in Jesus, spoke healing and salvation to people who were both sinners and sinned against. To people like us, who felt the exhaustion and the bitterness of the treadmill of transactional religion, and who had reduced God and neighbor as transactional means to their own selfish ends. To the bitter, he spoke a word of healing, and to the exhausted, he spoke a word of rest. In a society organized around transaction, in churches, let's be honest, vulnerable to spiritual transactionalism disguised as theological sophistication, we can never return too often to the cross of Jesus. Because it is at the cross that people find a God who will never treat us as a means to an end. Somebody say amen to that. At the cross... Abused people find a God who will never exploit us. Exhausted people find a God who will never drain us. Commodified people find a God who will never dehumanize us. Colonized people find a God who will never conquer us. Cynical people, and I know we've got some cynics in the room today, find a God who will never ever manipulate us. Frightened people will find a God who will never threaten us. Deceived people will find a God who will never lie to us. Lonely people will find a God who will never forget about us. What I'm trying to say is that Golgotha's cross is the antidote to the entrapments of transactional religion because it is there that we find a Savior who won our salvation through the humiliations and vulnerabilities of defenseless love love. You have been rescued from sin into the righteous kingdom of God only because our God chose the self-giving, selfless way of love. And so to a people worn down by pagan gods who can never be satisfied, To the ones who have been run over time and time again by the idols who are always demanding more of us, never delivering on their promises to us. To the spiritually exhausted in the room this morning who are done living one transaction to the next. Hear again the simple invitation offered by the God who willingly ascended the cross. Hear again the loving invitation offered by the God whose victory was accomplished, not by exploiting power, but by defenseless love. Hear again the saving invitation offered by the God who offered himself to the powers of sin, death, and evil so that we might be forever freed from their claims over our lives. 
I wonder if you can hear his invitation again this morning. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. And I will give you what? What? Rest. Notice, there are no caveats to this invitation. There are no exceptions to this invitation. There is no fine print to this invitation. There are no hoops for you to jump through first. No applications for you to complete. No reference checks you need to submit. There is no place for tit for tat. No room for quid pro quo. No space for backroom deals. It's just an invitation to come and rest. Rest. hear the invitation again today? Do you hear and do you see the difference between the captivity of transactional religion which enslaves and exhausts and leaves us bitter and the cross of Jesus Christ which is nothing but gift and grace from beginning to end from beginning. Look, I know for some of you, that's problematic. Because you want to be able to do something. You're like, actually, I've been working pretty hard at this. And, and, And there's a whole lot of things that I haven't been doing. And I'm just getting good at reading my Bible every single day. Cool, 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 cool. Gift and grace gift and from beginning to end. 